Welcome to the Politically Incorrect Podcast. I'm Jim Williams, joined by Tom Jackson, by Joe Henderson. Fortunately, both of them in the not-so-rainy Tampa Bay area as the uh, Tropical Depression goes by. And Alan Steinberg, hopefully dry in New York. Gentlemen. uh, How dry I am. How dry you are. (laughs) Uh, Gentlemen, yesterday, very interesting. It was kind of funny on Tuesday. We were going to. You know, we're kind of pondering what uh, Donald Trump's big speech on Wednesday was going to be. And at the time, we didn't know that he was off to Mexico. And then he goes to Mexico and then does a speech all in the same day within about a three-hour period. And uh, I don't know about you, but it was one of the most interesting days I think I've seen for a political candidate in my entire life. Um, Tom Jackson, any thoughts on yesterday? I well, it was certainly Trump at his most energetic. While while Hillary Clinton is going totally low profile, and that might be a wise strategic decision by her. Uh, Trump is is peripatetic. He, the man is, is is the definition of everywhere at once. Uh, and and I was I I thought he came out of Mexico looking pretty good. I mean the the president President Pena invited both candidates down. He went. Stood next to him, looked kind of like he could be a potential world leader standing there next to the to the president of Mexico. Said some sensible things about Mexico being our friend and our ally, and we got to figure out some ways to get along. Uh, there was, I guess, that dust up about whether they did or didn't really discuss uh, who would pay for this for this wall that uh, Trump cons- uh, insists still will be built. I don't know. The, the president brought it up uh, that it, they wouldn't pay for it, and Trump didn't respond. So, in some people's eyes, that was a discussion. In, in, in Trump's eyes, there wasn't a discussion. Uh, I don't know. But then, and then last night in Arizona, um, a, a a pretty decent policy speech got really tangled up in an awful lot of over-the-top rhetoric. I mean. If, if if Donald Trump had simply, simply gone to Arizona and said, guess what, fans, we are going to enforce the laws of the United States as they exist, and we're going to be vigorous about it, then I don't think that there would have been a whole lot of complaint. But my gosh, the way he revs it up, uh, the messenger is in this case somebody who is, who is extremely damaging to the message itself. Alan? Your thoughts? I think yesterday was the worst disaster the Trump campaign has had yet. Last night, he definitely lost, I think permanently, the support of two groups that will doom him in the November election. He was, uh, by Kellyanne Conway's, under her direction, the idea was to appeal to the white college educated. Any white college educated, or any person for that matter, who saw that rally last night, uh, could have uh, sworn that he or she was watching a Gerald L.K. Smith rally. I have never seen a greater exhibition of xenophobia and nativism than that rally last night, combined with Trump's hysterical speech. So if they were trying to make inroads uh, among the white college educated by proving Trump wasn't an incendiary bigot, they felt miserably. Number two, all day long today, we've had stories from Hispanics who formerly endorsed Trump about how they're going to withdraw their support Half his Hispanic advisory board is going to resign. Right now in the Suffolk poll today, Hillary Clinton has a margin of 40%. I think that margin is going to explode to 60%. 
combine all this, and I see no way, barring some catastrophic story on the Clintons, that Hillary Clinton is going to lose. Uh, I'll have comment later if we discuss the Clinton as to, as to what I think she needs to do as far as the foundation is concerned. Uh, but I think uh, this rodeo is, uh, barring some total catastrophe on her part, I think this rodeo is over. Joe Henderson on the Politically Incorrect podcast that you're listening to on NewstalkFlorida.com and BlogTalkRadio.com. Your thoughts? My thought is that I'm not sure Donald Trump grasped the whole idea that when you say something to one group or in one setting, as he did yesterday uh, in the press conference in Mexico, people are going to take notes. They're going to they're going to report on it, and they're going to say, "Okay, this is what he this is what he says." Then when he goes and and reverses himself just hours later, in a most incendiary manner, people are going to write about that. And in in Donald's world, I really don't think he gets or understands the impact something like that has, because then he's going to blame the media for, I don't know, reporting on what he said, when in reality, what he is, is coming across as as a frighteningly dangerous lunatic. He cannot be trusted. The the president of Mexico, who yesterday stood shoulder to shoulder with Donald Trump, now calls him, quote, a threat to the future of Mexico. Now, Donald Trump can't fix that between now and November. He can that that damage is done. He can't go back down to Mexico and say, Oh, come on, guys, I was just giving a speech, you know, to to my supporters there in Arizona. You didn't you didn't really buy that, did you? Which is how I honestly think Trump, what he what he believes. It's like he can say anything to any group at any time, and that's supposed to be okay. That is his oh, biggest really? misconception about no, you, the and, office. And, yeah, and, and you you have Rush Limbaugh backing you up on that. I mean, Limbaugh oh my gosh. Had, a, had, a, had a caller a couple of days ago who said, you know, he's taking he's taking positions exactly opposite <laughs> of what he said he was going to take, and, and Limbaugh just brushes it off well i never took him seriously anyway this is this is exactly the problem with donald trump is well not exactly the problem but it's among the problems with donald trump is that he can't be taken seriously on anything he says because as as somebody I, i i just read a story not too long ago and i think that it's true donald trump believes the last person that he talked to and he is he is that he is that amenable to suggestion, and he just he just blows in the breeze. I mean, uh, uh, Sean Hannity puts words in his mouth every time he he, he sits in, in Donald's lap, and it's just that sort of stuff that is not going. Uh, it, it's it's going to be a disaster for him in in November. That's just uh, increasingly clear. You know, Tom, I think you know, Trump, Trump is. Go ahead. Alan, go ahead. I think, I think the outcome of this election, based on the trend, based on what will develop out of last night, I think Hillary Clinton is going to end up with over 350 electoral votes and a 10-point uh, popular vote margin. I think you're going to see at the end uh, Gary Johnson and Bill Weld fade because people don't want to waste their votes. Uh, but And in every poll, they take more out of her than out of Trump. So uh, barring some uh, catastrophe on her part, she's headed for the White House. 
Yeah. You were saying? Well, the, yeah. The here's here's what I wouldn't want to be right now is one of Trump's explainers, one of those people who try to clean up his messes, because there's no cleaning this up. You know, he he says what he says, and I I still don't get that or think he gets that the world takes him seriously and reacts to whatever he says. And when they react negatively, then he leaves it to somebody else to clean up. And who would want that job right now? Uh, my prediction is he will go through uh, another campaign chairperson before this race is over. And he may wind up just doing it himself um, and go down in flames. And, you know, on November 9th, we can all uh, breathe a sigh of relief. Joe, you know, you reminded me of something just now. Uh, you know, when you say he may get another manager, which may be true, he sounds like George Steinbrenner. And years ago, <laughs> Art Rush Jr. Uh, one, used to have Donald on his show, and Donald owned the USFL franchise of the New York Generals. And he liked Donald at that time, and he called him a Steinbrenner with sensitivity. Well, I think we can see the sensitivity is gone now, and he is like uh, George Steinbrenner in the flesh. Uh, that is a great analogy, and uh, the only difference is, is he may be able to fire a um, a campaign manager or an aide or somebody like that. But can you imagine just the nightmare scenario? Donald Trump gets elected. And sorry, Donald, you can't fire Congress. You can't <laughs> fire the people who disagree with you, that they are sent there to be a check and balance to make sure we don't have a maniac in the Oval Office. And when he realizes that he can't do even the smallest percentage of what he's been going around promising his supporters he will do if he's elected, then there's no telling what could happen. This whole thing could just erupt into into total chaos. But I agree with, with both my learned colleagues here, all of my learned colleagues, Jim, I include you in that group, that uh, he can't win. He just can't win. There's no way. There's you know no way. Here on the Politically Incorrect Podcast, I'm Jim Williams of Washington Bureau Chief for News Talk Florida. You're listening on News Talk Florida and Blog Talk Radio. Tom Jackson, I, I tend to agree with something you said early, and that was had he just did the situation of going down to uh, Mexico and you know got through that relatively well, got on a plane, flew back to New York, and the speech that he was that he gave in, in Arizona last night had not taken place, at least for a few days. I think that might have been something that, that could have been helpful to him. But in between Mexico City and Phoenix, the speech that he gave was, I'm absolutely certain that there's nobody on that campaign staff that wrote that speech for him. I mean, it, it, you know, you can't go from Mexico City to Phoenix in three hours, step on stage and give the speech he gave and expect it to be, you know, expect everyone to go, wait a minute. You know, you got a whiplash situation. You've got, he looked decent, sounded reasonable in Mexico City and then goes to Phoenix and blows it all up in an hour. 
Is that know. a question to me, or is that just a no, statement? No, I was just saying I was agreeing. <laughs> I was pretty much agree- I was just saying I was agreeing with you that you had mentioned in 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 your early remarks that that yeah. in the afternoon, you know, relative calm. You saw he's standing yeah. on the stage. He's looking good. He's not looking like a maniac. But when he get, I think this is. I think the problem is. He loves the performance. He loves the big crowds. He loves to rev them up. And the only yeah. way he can do that is build the wall. Who's going to pay for the wall and all that? Forgetting it three hours ago, he was standing next to the guy who, oh, by the way, would have to pay for that wall. So, well, the, the, idea of the, the idea of getting Mexico to pay for the wall, as I understand it, and I'm not sure about the, the practical considerations of how you get this done, but there are tens of millions, if not billions, and I suspect there are billions of dollars that are remitted by people who are, are – by Mexicans to their families back home in Mexico that are, that are wire transfers and that sort of thing that happen all the time and billions each year. And if you are, if you are able to get a tax of those going through – if you can get Congress to pass that tax – that takes some portion of those remittances and puts it into a wall fund, well, then that's the way you get Mexico to pay for it. You, you punish their economy a little bit right. by, by lessening how much money goes to Mexico from uh, Mexicans living in, living in the United States and working here. And that's, and that's how that, that thing works. I, I, I mean, that's, that's the way I understand that it's, it's, it's been explained to me. I don't know how that practically works. But still, um, uh, there's there's a there's a good portion of the American public who think that we need to strengthen border security somehow, some way. And if a, if, if there are walls and for, uh, components to that, then maybe I don't know. Maybe that's something that works for them. But I mean, again, I I say I would reiterate that the ten point plan that he laid out is not all that outrageous. It's just that he delivered it with so much bombast. That was baited, that that was just clear red meat and bombast for his for his uh, core supporters who I, I I don't know maybe he's thinking those are leaking away. Uh, it, he obscured the idea that uh, the next president needs to do something forceful and thoughtful, uh, and you can do both uh, uh, about our immigration situation. Tom, I want to address something yeah. you just said, and I think you have your finger on something very important here about. Uh, the need to levy some kind that in order to build his wall, he would have to levy some kind of tax on the payments uh, that are going from uh, Americans, uh, uh, you know, Mexican-Americans who have uh, already achieved citizenship here back to their families in Mexico. Uh, from what I know of Donald Trump, and I've dealt with him personally, I don't think he would wait for Congress to pass something. He would just do it, and you would get into a constitutional crisis. He would just issue some executive order. Uh, that would be in violation of the Constitution. He wouldn't care. This is where the man has a terrible potential for abuse of power. But addressing something Jim had said about no one on his staff knowing what he was going to say, I would agree with that up to a point. I guarantee you one person did know, and that person's initials are Steve Bannon. Steve (laughs) Bannon is a Svengali. Steve Bannon is a Svengali over Donald Trump. He is the one person in this whole campaign that has control over Donald Trump. It's not his children. It's not uh, any of these other advisors. This man is going to come out. Trump is going to lose. This man is going to be heading up the alt-right for years, heading up the new Trump television network. 
And Donald is going to be a backbencher to Steve Bannon. Bannon is a very dangerous guy. You know what was interesting about the the whole um, one of the little sidelights of the, of the uh, Mexican trip was that Trump comes out and says, "No, the, we never talked about the wall. Uh, never came up." And you know, of course, anybody with a lick of common sense is going to go, "Oh yeah, right." Well, then. His counterpart, the Mexican president, says, no, it was actually um, in comments later on after the press conference broke up. said, no, no, no. It was the first thing that came up, and I absolutely told him we're not going to pay for it. So why wouldn't, if you're Trump, you're caught, you're caught in a lie if by saying it didn't come up, and if you say, yes, it did come up, and – the uh, man on the other side of the stage goes, yeah, and we're not paying for it. Now you got a disaster. So either way, the trip was they thought would be a photo op, I guess, which is what how Hillary Clinton has characterized it. And I think it, instead it's turned into a PR disaster um, from which they, it may not be recoverable. Well, it's a, it's a PR disaster from both sides. It's not just a PR disaster from from Trump's standpoint. It's a PR disaster from, from the Mexican president who, if you took both of their approval ratings and put them together, they just would crack the 50% mark. So I'm not so sure it was ill-advised. You know, well, I'm not sure it wasn't ill-advised is what I should have said. Anyway, you're listening to the Politically Incorrect podcast. I'm Jim Williams, Washington Bureau Chief of News Talk Florida, with Joe Henderson, Tom Jackson, Alan Steinberg. We're going to step aside for a moment, and you think, I know, you think we're being hard on Donald Trump, and we haven't touched anything about Hillary Clinton. Well, tell you what, after the break, we'll rev up our little what's going on with Hillary and what is she thinking is coming up. So let us pay some bills. We'll be right back on this, the Politically Incorrect podcast on NewstalkFlorida.com and BlogTalkRadio.com. Welcome back to the Politically Incorrect podcast on BlogTalkRadio.com and NewstalkFlorida.com. I'm Jim Williams, joined by, from left to right, Alan Steinberg, Joe Henderson, and Tom Jackson. And um, in the first half of our little podcast today, we uh, we took a pretty good sledgehammer to uh, to Donald Trump, and now the person to whom he is running against, Ms. Former Secretary Hillary Rodham Clinton, and it's not been a good couple of weeks for former Secretary Clinton. She's had email situations with the foundation. She's lost a significant amount of uh, poll numbers, although Trump's haven't gone up, hers have gone down. So it's gotten to be a closer race, and now we're even getting a little bit of uh, what Politico reports in the uh, in their pages today, that there might even been some indiscretions on Bill Clinton's part. So there's a, there's a lot of bre- stuff brewing in Clinton land, and uh, I'm wondering how she, if anyway, even if she can, navigate through it. Uh, Joe, I'll give you first crack at this one. Well, she will navigate through it by 
stonewalling, by not having press conferences, by uh, continuing to point fingers at her opponent uh, with the implied message, you may not like me, but you're going to be scared to death of him. And she will pray uh, that WikiLeaks doesn't drop you know, more truth bombs on her between now and November, which, of course, will happen. Uh, she will have between now and November, I believe, uh, another major, at least one more major hit that will be embarrassing, uh, potentially uh, legal issues involved. But here's the thing at, at this point, and unless she can be proven to have actually committed a felony somewhere along the line, I'm not sure what else you can say that will, will ultimately swing the, the deal in November. Basically, already people don't believe her. They don't trust her. They don't particularly like her. Uh, even her, uh, I saw a poll uh, just today that her, uh, even those who will vote for her, only about a little over 20% are really excited about it. But when they look over and they see Donald Trump, at least they go, well, you know, we'll elect her now and vote her out four years from now, uh, I think is, is what a lot of people are thinking. I think she'll weather this, um, but she is, um, she, you know, uh, suffering from an enthusiasm gap. Uh, people see her as maybe the uh, lesser of two evils at this point and probably not that much lesser. Huh? I think that, that was a pretty doggone good Reader's Digest version of what we're going to see over the next uh, two and a half months. Uh, I, th I think that the Bill Clinton plan is working to absolute perfection. He has gotten the one guy in this race who probably is the GOP nominee, the, the one person who cannot beat his wife uh, to prevent her from, from sitting in the Oval Office. Uh, Yes, there's going to be more that's going to come out, and yes, it's going to be damaging, and yes, she's going to look worse and worse. She is going to continue to be uh, an, an unindicted uh, criminal, and the alternative is going to be, yeah, but look at the other guy. And I, I think that's a fairly compelling argument for an awful lot of uh, even Republicans who, who would otherwise never, ever vote for Hillary Clinton. I, my own thought is... I wonder if, if if somebody could wave a magic wand and strip away all the party affiliations uh, from from let's say the three major candidates. Let's let's throw uh, Gary Johnson in there as well. If we could strip away all of the party affiliations from those three and just say, look at these three people. Look at their look at their backgrounds. Look at their experience. Look at their achievements. Look at their plans for the nation. Which one do you think would make the best president? I'm not sure, but what Johnson wouldn't rise to the top in that situation. He might rise above Trump. Right now, I think anyone on this panel would rise above Trump. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to address what uh, – You had some advice I, I, for the Clinton campaign. 
Well, yes, I want to address what uh, Joe and Tom both said. I agree with them completely. Uh, the best article on the whole issue of the foundation, at least the most relevant to me personally, was in the New York Times this week. And it was written by a man named Richard Painter. Now, he was the ethics counsel in the second term of the administration of George W. Bush. And it was relevant to me because I'm a Bush administration veteran who has endorsed Hillary, and Richard Painter has done the same thing. And we have a lot of company, as you know. Now, the point he made, he's an excellent lawyer. He said, thus far, and it's likely to remain this way, they have found no violations on the part of Hillary, Bill, or the foundation in terms of criminal laws or in terms of ethics regulations. However, it smells bad. And the reason it smells bad is the public does not like to see access being sold. And that's what you do have here. And the selling of access, again, it's not a violation of criminal uh, law or ethical standards, but it's bad. Now, the problem that Hillary Clinton has is that she, they can't change right now the game plan for her withdrawal from uh, anything having to do with the foundation or anything with Bill Clinton having to do with the foundation. If they do that, it would look like an admission of guilt. And they cannot afford to do anything that looks like an admission of guilt. When the Times had their editorial saying shut down the foundation, Boston Globe had something like that, they can't do that. They would look guilty and they would lose by that. So what they have to do is, in response to every question, they have to say there were no criminal violations, there were no violations of ethical statutes, we complied. And they can say that, even though it smells bad to sell access. And then what they have to do, the best defense is a good offense. They have to go after Trump on one thing continuously, and that is that he is an unfit commander-in-chief. Today, Hillary Clinton got the endorsement of two generals, uh, two four-star generals. Now, they've got to use those endorsements that basically, and the reason they endorsed her is they basically said she's an unfit, that uh, Donald Trump is an unfit commander-in-chief. And that way, the public will say, well, we don't like the fact that the Clintons uh, sell access. The uh, Clintons are uh, really a seedy bunch of people, but she can be the commander-in-chief. We can't have this uh, nut right out of the water, Donald Trump is our commander-in-chief. If she's able to sell that, uh, she's going to win by a very substantial majority. What about the situation, guys, on this the Politically Incorrect podcast with Alan Steinberg, who you just heard, Tom Jackson and Joe Henderson. I'm Jim Williams, the Washington Bureau Chief of News Talk Florida. You're listening to us on NewstalkFlorida.com and BlogTalkRadio.com. I'm I'm sensing that there's not going to be a lot of of independence in this in this election. Am I wrong in that? Uh, let me throw it out, guys. Uh, Tom, I'll give you first one up on that. It just it seems to me they. That people aren't, I, I don't, people who I've spoken to who are true independents and really don't have any particular candidate in this, you know, seem more likely to want to send it out. I, that, that really wouldn't shock me at all. This, this looks to me like it is increasingly becoming a, uh, a base driven election. And maybe that's because uh, Barack Obama demonstrated that you can get away with that. I mean, he lost independence enormously in 2012 and still handily won the election because he paid attention to, to get out the vote. 
uh, he got his people to the polls, and the the Romney campaign did not do such a good job on that. And I think that now that that now that that's demonstrated, you can get away with doing that. That might be the flavor of the month. That might be the thing that uh, that both these campaigns figure they can get away with doing, and just figuring out you know who's going to be more enthusiastic about getting to the polls. And and yeah, and I feel bad. I, I feel awfully bad for those people who feel like they are independently minded and want to vote for the best candidate, and because of that, they don't affiliate it with uh, don't affiliate with a party. Uh, those folks as you point out, Jim, might be just left in the lurch this time around. And that's not – that for a country like ours is just not good moving forward. I, I, I worry. Joe, you had uh, – I'm sorry. Um, yeah, Joe, you had mentioned you had spoken to the mayor of Tampa uh, and that he had discussed with you a, the ground game in Florida that um, might help Secretary Clinton – because she has a ground game versus a not so strong ground game for the Republicans uh, in the state. Yeah, that's correct. Um, it's a big holdover uh, from Barack Obama's ground game. Um, a lot of the same people are involved. And uh, to quote uh, Mr. Buckhorn, Bob Buckhorn, the mayor of Tampa, uh, those people never left. They've been here. They didn't just parachute back in and and say, okay, vote for Hillary. Um, and that's all about turnout. And I think in Florida, uh, there's going to be a fairly substantial turnout. We saw actually uh, in the primary on Tuesday of this week, um, the the total vote was about 18%, which doesn't sound like much, but it was still – um, three points higher than the last time we had a primary uh, in this state. And a lot of that is is early voting, uh, vote by mail, uh, all the things that Tom Jackson doesn't like. And um, darn right. What they darn right. I, uh, I hear you, Tom. Uh, but uh, so what they're going to be stressing is. Yeah, we want you to get out and vote for Hillary Clinton, but we also want you to vote for uh, Patrick Murphy and help uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Marco Rubio leave a, a job that he said he hated. And we want to we want to uh, get some more uh, Democratic uh, House of Representatives members and and that sort of thing, uh, the the down ballot stuff. So, you know, I I think they're going to be going after not only the people in their own party, but they're also, you know, the independent people saying, look, you know, there's a lot of other races out there that you need to have a voice in. Alan, you've been involved in campaigns. How important is the ground game, especially uh, when we're in a um, situation like this, where you really have to uh, count on your base coming out and, and uh, helping you? Uh, what they call GOTV, get out the vote, is very important, particularly in this campaign. Uh, and I'm speaking with reference to the African-American vote. Every single poll shows Hillary Clinton way ahead in the African-American vote is, with as big a margin as Barack Obama had. Now, uh, the African-American vote has been coming out in elections, not just those involving Obama, in bigger and bigger numbers. But 
she is going to uh, need that turnout in the African-American community. Uh, the Democratic National Committee is pretty good with get out the vote. And if she gets uh, a good African-American uh, community turnout, I think that uh, she is really, really going to do well in uh, all the states, but in particular three states, and I'll tell you what they are. Uh, Georgia, where I think the combination of white college-educated plus African-American vote in Atlanta can be decisive in her behalf. Uh, Florida, that's where get-out-the-vote is going to be a key. Now, I'll defer to the three of you, uh, but I've been reading how the uh, influx of uh, Puerto Rican voters into Florida, these voters are going to vote uh, Democrat, and a, a lot of them now live in the I-4 corridor area, and I-4 corridor, my understanding was it was a Republican area, I understand that now is uh, veering Democratic, and uh, that is going to getting that vote out is going to be uh, a key for Hillary Clinton. And then you go to North Carolina. In North Carolina, again, the need to get out the African American vote, the white college educated vote, in particular the high tech middle management folks that have been really boosting the population and turnout in North Carolina. You got to get those uh, groups out, and if you get those groups out. I think that uh, we may have a new South emerging out of this election where the deep South continues to vote Republican, for example, Alabama, Arkansas, Mississippi, Louisiana. But the Atlantic Seaboard South, which is Florida, North Carolina, Georgia, and maybe even South Carolina, the polls are close there. I think you may see a new Seaboard South, which votes uh, Democratic in presidential elections, at least in this one. Guys talking about the I-4 corridor, as Alan did, uh, do you think uh, that it's listing in this at this particular point toward uh, Secretary Clinton, Joe? I do, um, even though that's not a – it's not a lock. I mean, there's there's yeah. a lot of conservative people uh, that live along the, uh, the I-4 corridor, but, you know, when you connect – Tampa, which the the city of Tampa is heavily Democratic. You get out in the suburbs, it's heavily Republican. And but then you go all the way over to Orlando and Daytona. Uh, you know, as Alan said, that there there is a a large influx of uh, Puerto Rican population there and stuff that will go uh, for Secretary Clinton. So uh, the saying in Florida is that uh, as I four corridor goes, so goes the election and. I do see it going for Clinton. Tom, your thoughts on the I-4 corridor? My thoughts extend a little bit beyond the I-4 corridor. Um, Florida is is a perplexing state for people who try to predict elections. Uh, For years, there has been an enormous advantage in uh, in Democratic registrations, and yet uh, throughout uh, across the state, and yet the 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 state has four elect, uh, statewide elected uh, Republicans from the uh, in the cabinet and the governor's office. They've got huge advantages in the legislature of, of Republicans. And last time around, despite nearly 600,000 more registered Democrats than Republicans, uh, Barack Obama won the state by 74,000 votes. Well, since then. Since then, the Democrat edge in outright registrations has shrunk by by half. Now, now Democrats outnumber Republicans in registrations by like 259,000. 
the the shift is in that yes, there's there, there are quite a few more uh, Puerto Rican Amer- Puerto Ricans who have come to Florida and have registered something on the order of like 92,000. Um, but there's been a real shift in uh, white registration among Republicans, and that is that those aren't no, so much new registrations as they are party switchers going from Democrat to Republican. Um, I don't know what that means ultimately. These, these might be Democrats who were voting Republican all along anyway, and it might not change the outcome of the election at all, or it might be a, a, a light bulb going off in the heads of longtime Democrats who said, I'm a Republican, by God, I'm going to vote Republican, and, it will, and we won't know what happens with that until, until election day. Uh, I'm not. I'm not convinced that that uh, that Florida and the I-4 corridor are going to tilt as far to the Democrat side as as some uh, as as conventional wisdom would suggest. I, I simply we don't know yet. We simply don't know. I have a question, if I may, of uh, Joe and Tom. Uh, I have heard from Washington sources who don't have the expertise that either of you have in terms of Florida. That the Cuban vote, which always has gone Puerto Rican, which has always gone Republican uh, in presidential elections, this year seems to be leaning towards Clinton. I don't know if that's the case or not, but that's of interest to me also because in New Jersey, the Cuban vote goes Democrat. Bob Menendez, the senator, is a Cuban American. Uh, what do you hear about the Cuban vote in Florida? I think I, I think we um, that might have come up. Earlier in our in our podcast, down way back a month or two or three ago, I don't know how long we how long we've been doing this thing anyway. No, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I think year. <laughs> but I'm a newcomer. I, I, I didn't I, get the benefit of your wisdom yeah, till now. Yes. Well, let's well let's let's do this again. Um, I I think that uh, the, the polls show that younger Cuban Americans are beginning to trend. Far more Democrat than their um, than their than their ancestors did, than their 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 parents and their grandparents, because they have seen that the that the hardcore staunch uh, republicanism of isolating Cuba is is not necessarily working out well for the Cuban people. It's it's working out fine for the Castros, but not so much for the Cuban people, who they I think still have sympathy for. Uh, so yeah, there's probably a drift. Uh, as with many Hispanics toward uh, toward Democrats in in that community, uh, although uh, when the when the March primary happened, pres- uh, pre- uh, presidential preference primary, uh, Dade County, which is where most Cuban Americans live, was the one county that did go for Marco Rubio. So you know, there you go. You just never know. Well, and and uh, I think I I agree with Tom on on all of that. Uh, but there is there is also another factor that makes Florida really difficult to predict is that there's so many people moving here. Florida is now the third what third most populous state yeah. in the uh, yes. in, in the we've got 20 million people living here. Taxes in Florida. Yeah, and 20 million people live in Florida and the estimates are that when within about the next decade uh, that there will be five to six million more people living here, which uh, I read something that, that pointed out that that's larger than the population of Australia. 
and all these people are coming from the cold, frozen north or wherever they're coming from, and they're bringing their own political identity down here. So unless we get a, a, a read on Ohio sending us X percent, <laughs> Pennsylvania sending this many, New York and, and whatever, uh, Florida is going to become increasingly difficult to predict, I think, over the next decade. Uh, it's, it's not that easy to predict now, uh, frankly. Well, you know what Donald Trump would say, guys, uh, my good fellow uh, friends from Florida, Tom and Joe, he'd say, they're not sending you their best. <laughs> <laughs> Our crime <Okay>. rate's down. <laughs> All right. Well, the Politically Incorrect Podcast, I'm Jim Williams, your Washington Bureau Chief for News Talk Florida, where you're listening to this on News Talk Florida and Blog Talk Radio. Gentlemen. Let's let's leave this on a sense of a bit of humor. We've had a lot of context here about Mr. Trump and Miss Secretary Clinton and how they've uh, kind of fumbled and bumbled their way to the uh, finish line here. Uh, earlier this week, we had the passing of Gene Wilder, one of the best, in my estimation, comedic actors to come along in in many years. And so let's do this. Let's do what's your favorite Gene Wilder film as your takeaway for the uh, for this particular podcast. Um Tom, I'll give it to you first. I got to choose one. Oh no, my you god. Can, you, know, you can choose a couple. Uh, you you know, I, um I will say that not that this is not my favorite Gene Wilder film, but it's the, it's the one that that nobody mentions among the, the wonderful things that he did. Uh, Silver Streak, in which he was teamed up with Richard Pryor, yes. and Jill Clayburgh was a marvelous film, absolutely marvelous. I mean, it, it really introduced Americans to the comedic genius of, of Richard Pryor, but uh, but Gene Wilder held his own so well in that film. <laughs> That I, I really think it was it was a terrific effort by him. But if I had to pick one, I'm gonna say Frankenstein, Young Frankenstein, where he does he's just he is the centerpiece of the film and carries it from one end to the other and is just terrific the whole way. I, I loved him in that. Joe. Well, as, as I had to correct uh, someone the other day uh, on this very subject, it's young Frankenstein. If you're going to get it right. No, no. My <laughs> name is Frankenstein. Um, That's funny. Uh, I would have to go uh, with Blazing Saddles. It. Um, I watched the, the night that, that Gene left us. I, I watched it uh, here at home in, in his honor. And... Um, just so many great moments uh, by him in that movie. Uh, the the part where he grabs the the chess piece, while, you know, uh, on the board, or he shoots the guns out of like six bad guys' hands, or or any of you know, just go down the list. I, I love the line at at the end, you know. Uh, oh yeah. Where are you oh, going, yeah. cowboy? No place special. Always yeah. wanted to go there. You know, just <laughs> perfect, perfect timing. And, uh, you know, that movie's what, 40 years old now? And, and it, it, it's as funny as it ever was. Yep. Alan, what you think? 
I have two. The first one is one I never hear anybody talk about. Uh, the Frisco Kid. It's of relevance to me uh, because I'm an Orthodox Jew, and he plays a rabbi who finished last in his class in Warsaw and comes to San Francisco to become a rabbi. And the scenes with him and Harrison Ford are, are just hilarious. And uh, I can watch that movie and never stop laughing. Uh, the other is one that uh, I saw with uh, my ex-wife, who is still a very good friend of mine, the mother of my son. Our first date was in 1972. I remember it was right after the Pirates lost the playoffs to Cincinnati uh, on a wild pitch by Bob Moose. We, I needed uh, some comfort, so we went to the movie on Saturday night. We saw the Woody Allen movie, Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Sex But Were Afraid to Ask. And Gene Wilder plays a doctor who falls in love with a sheep. It was so funny. I'll, I'll never forget it. And I, I called my ex the other day when he died. I said, remember that? She said, I remember that like it was yesterday. It was hilarious. Gene was a great one. Yeah. And by the way, Alan, just, just for the record, um, the baseball game you referenced, that was a very good day for all of us Cincinnati Reds fans. <laughs> I was so heartsick. That was the greatest <laughs> pirate team ever. And uh, Willie Stargell failed to hit in that series, and I was humiliated. I was a law student uh, obnoxiously rooting for the Pirates. I went, they had won the World Series in 71. I went to my dorm. I didn't show my face for a day. Never forget <laughs> it. I still haven't recovered. <laughs> well, and, and the sad fact was, gentlemen, as you recall, Bob Moose actually died in a car accident during yes, the offseason. And, well, and, uh, and that was also Roberto Clemente's last game. Yeah, it was. His last game, yes, his very last game. But uh, Willie the Starge, one of my all-time favorites, he didn't hit in any of the playoff series until 1979 when he was the leader of We Are Family. But that was the greatest power team I ever saw. They didn't make it to the World Series. Well, I'll tell you, it was, it was a tough one. But um, anyway, to uh, quote the great – Mel Brooks from the movie The Producers. And I think this kind of sums up both the Democrats and the Republicans. I picked the wrong actor, the wrong play, the wrong music, and the wrong script. Where the hell did I go right? <laughs> so it's kind of been that kind of a situation this time around. Real quick, Tom Jackson, where can we find you on uh, social media? We know we can read you in the uh, on sports and news and sportstalkflorida.com, but where can we find you in social media? On Facebook, you can find me at uh, Tom Jackson, journalist, entrepreneur, and uh, on Twitter, my handle is at Thomas Jacks, T-H-O-M-A-S-J-A-X, Tampa. Joe Henderson. Well, you can find me on Facebook. Uh, at Joe Henderson, commentary, columns, and such. And if uh, you want to go on Twitter, you can find me at the initial J Henderson Tampa. And Mr. Steinberg, where can we find you? You can find me on Facebook at Alan Joel Steinberg, the name my parents gave me. And you can uh, find me on Twitter at A Steinberg 613. You can find me, Jim Williams, the Washington Bureau Chief of News Talk Florida on NTFLA underscore politics. That's NTFLA underscore politics, where my new friend Richard Spencer has found me. So um, I will leave it 
with that. And uh, it's been another fun podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we've enjoyed bringing it to you. And we'll be with you next time around. And until then, I'm Jim Williams, News Talk Florida Bureau, Washington Bureau Chief. And we are being heard on Sports Talk Florida, I'm sorry, NewsTalkFlorida.com and blogtalkradio.com. Until next time.